Ruth Panofsky is professor of English literature yeah. at the Department of English Faculty of the Arts, Ryerson University, and has or is in the process of writing a history of Macmillan Canada. With an emphasis on the people at the helm. Okay, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. I'm going to, or at least my questioning is going to, to emphasize the books, the types of books, the series, the illustrators, the authors, obviously, the books that Macmillan published uh, with an eye toward giving collectors ideas on what they might wish to collect okay. within that publishing house. But perhaps to start with, you could give us a, a quick thumbnail history. Well, Macmillan set up shop in December 1905 in Toronto. Richmond Street was their first location. Location. They moved five years later to Bond Street when they were successful enough to basically put up this stately building very close by, actually, right close by to Ryerson's campus on Booksellers Row, as it was called. So Bond Street was their home from 1910 up until 1981 or thereabouts. It was a business that was set up ostensibly to sell the books that were produced in the UK and New York. New York really wanted to secure the Canadian market, so it was really George Brett's impetus that put Macmillan here in Toronto. George Brett was the president of the Macmillan Company of New York, and he broached this matter in his entrepreneurial way with the UK principals who said, yes, good idea. And so they set up shop here. More or less of a sales office. It was a sales office. Uh, They wanted to disseminate Macmillan books, very much an agent, as they were called in those days. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that if there was going to be any Canadian publishing, it was only going to be school book publishing, books that were sanctioned by the Ontario government primarily because it was the largest school book market in Canada at the time and nothing else because it was far too risky. Before they had other agents, but Brett saw um, a growing potential, rightly so, here in Canada because there were certain changes to copyright legislation primarily and certain other changes that made the turn of the century particularly fortuitous for lots of branch plants that opened up here in Toronto. So as long as you opened up an office here, you could sell into the market? Was that? No, it wasn't. wasn't even that? They could sell into the market even without the office. But if you had a presence here, you had a greater access to that market. Agents who were given the right to disseminate your books were not the same as your own company's branch no. plant operation. No, I mean, they didn't devote 100% of their time exactly. to your product. Exactly. Yeah. And so would they also put on the title page, would they put Macmillan of Canada? They did. Sort of a SOP, not necessarily to government, but I mean, it made it look like it might be published here when really it was the whole thing just was shipped over here. Is that right? The majority of books were, in fact, produced elsewhere with yeah. a cancelled title leaf put in the Macmillan Company of Canada. But from the very beginning, Frank Wise, who was the first president, he interned, in fact, well, I'm calling it an internship. He really worked for 10 years under George Brett in the U.S. office in the education department. He was chosen to set up shop here. He was a Brit, um, and George Brett felt that it might be best to get Wise out of the New York office. He was feeling perhaps that he was um, undermining his business, so he sent him out here. From the beginning, he wanted to start publishing some of his own Canadian titles that reflected a real interest in empire, in imperialism. At the same time, he was a strong uh, allegiance to um, the UK. His publications reflect that dual allegiance 
So what's the first Canadian title then? The first Canadian titles are um, educational texts. What about the ones that Wise... Oh, the first Canadian title, I think it was... Well, I guess written, written by, by a Canadian. Canadian. Yeah. It was uh, biology and chemistry textbooks. They're all oh, okay, textbooks. Okay. There were a few trade titles, popular okay. histories, literary texts under Wise. He started basically a fledgling list of Canadian author texts produced in Canada, published okay. in Canada. Again, from my perspective as a collector, what do you think are the most important texts that Wise published? The first Macmillan title that was actually commissioned, written, yeah. and printed, bound, and distributed completely cool. in Canada, that might be an interesting title. Okay, they would fall into two categories. The educational texts are really important under Wise. For example, in 1912, he bought up George Morang's list. Morang was, as you probably know, an early publisher, and it was with that purchase that he established Macmillan's reputation as this premier educational publisher. He inherited the Alexandra Readers, for example, which were hugely successful under Morang and became even more so under Frank Wise. And are these books that were used in schools, in schools or not? Okay. In schools. In terms of trade titles, I would say the first novel published under the pseudonym Goose Quill. As others see us, that's the title, author W.H.P. Jarvis. Canadian? He's Canadian, written in the voice of a young Deb in some up-and-coming city probably Toronto, writing in her voice a series of diary entries about her experience of coming out among the nouveau riche. It's very valuable in terms of sociological relevance. The voice is interesting as well. And interesting that a male would assume yeah, a he's female Exactly. Role. And then there are these book of poems by Thaddeus Brown glorifying the soldiers during the First World War. These would have been successful? No, I don't think they were successful at all. They were published out of a sense of wanting to foster national identity. Or at least Macmillan wanting to curry favor with the Canadian. No, government. I don't. I think no, I don't think so. I think no. it came from Wise primarily, who really had this agenda of establishing Macmillan as a Canadian publisher. It was a branch plant operation, and he wanted to make it a Canadian operation. When he purchased Morang, that helped his cause quite a bit. Tremendously. He was the textbook publisher okay. in Canada, and plus he inherited this unbelievably skillful editor named John Cameron Saul. So under Wise, really, what happens is the educational publishing is stabilized and solidified. And the only reason that he was able to put up a building five years into being in Canada was because Wise on his own, before he acquired Saul, was so successful at get getting government contracts for, for educational publications. Mm. So he must so, be a good salesman. Yeah, and also um, Macmillan was reputable, right? Yeah. Macmillan had this prestige name Aura. associated with it. You know, there was an awful lot of reputation riding on the Macmillan name. Wise understood that, but he also knew that in order to be able to do any kind of publishing that would build the cultural profile, you know, textbooks don't really build the cultural no. profile. Not too he, sexy. he needed money and he used the money from educational publishing to then build this other list. Frank Wise has this ignominious departure from Macmillan. He's actually 
incarcerated. <laughs> well, he doesn't he take some of their for his own personal He's benefit? A, right? He sets up uh, various business operations at 70 Bond Street, and he's, he's using Macmillan's money to make yeah, money for himself. That's right. right. And yeah. he also sets up this company that is bringing Italian immigrants in, and he is basically he's he's being fraudulent. He spends some time at Kingston Pen. So he gets kicked out in 1921, and this young upstart named Hugh Ayres comes in. He lasts until 1940 when he dies as a young man of a heart attack from really hard living and, and, and heavy drinking. But under Ayres, a Macmillan takes off. He inherits the good fortune of, <laughs> first of all, Brett recommended him in the same way that he recommended Wise. So he was a favorite. He was very energetic, a very dynamic, and a very savvy bookman. Canadian? No, a British-born as well, but in Canada since the age of 18. Okay. He's not even 26 when he's appointed head of the company. He has a real charismatic personality, although he looks like a hound dog. He's funny-looking, but he's really quite dynamic. He inherits both the great things that Wise left behind and the mess. He quickly cleans up the mess to everybody's delight. He also has the wherewithal to publish Maria Chapdelaine in translation. Now we had the choice of two translations, W.H. Blake's free translation or a much more literal translation by a friend, Andrew McPhail, who was a McGill prof and a physician. And he was also, I think, the editor of the McGill Fortnightly. So being a very literary person, he was hired into Macmillan to work in education. But he, no, Ayers, but he quickly moved out of there because he really he loved trade publishing. He chose, at great risk and daring, to publish this free translation. And lo and behold, mm. the book becomes this runaway bestseller. And it is a beautiful, beautiful book, and it remains this canonical text. So his first coup in his first year was to publish a bestseller, 1921. So here's a pretty good collectible book. Oh, yeah, hugely collectible, mm. if they're still around. Um, <laughs> and it's a beautiful edition, beautiful. What do you mean beautiful? Well, uh, Macmillan's book books, yeah, Macmillan's books are beautiful. They're elegant and understated, and they're just quality production, and they're so carefully edited, and they're just lovely. So Maria Chapdelaine then proves that Ayres has got it, and he's given a lot of freedom to publish um, a whole range of other authors. So under Ayres, educational publishing is there, but it becomes the engine that supports all his trade publishings. He's publishing Grey Owl, De La Roche, E.J. Pratt's poetry, George Wrong's history, Marius Barbeau's folklore. He is really setting the ground. Under him, too, poets like Dorothy Livesey get published, but she had to pay for her own. The poets in the 20s paid for their own publications. That was fairly typical because mm -hmm. it was such a small market for serious poetry. So it was like vanity. Publishing. Yeah, vanity, but not really because Macmillan backs it, Macmillan publishes it. Yeah. it they're, so they're just basically paying for it. So it's not like some, you know, vanity imprint on there. Yeah. No, it's not like that. Ayers really puts Macmillan on the map um, as a Canadian publisher. The texts he produced made a lot of money for the company. Grey Owl and De La Roche were oh, internationally yeah. successful mm -hmm. writers. I think he published a Leacock, but not much. Chapdelaine made tons of money. It wasn't just, just Canadian, Canadian bestselling would, would not have made many money. Mm -hmm. Canadian bestsellers were always international, going back to the 19th century, the clockmaker, etc., etc. He had a real good nose for the bestseller. 
and he signed up these books. Now, E.J. Pratt, too, who he published, was a successful poet. So Ayers set up poetry, prose. He really did tremendous things. And then the war came. Just before we yeah. moved there, what about illustrators? Any illustrators that he favored that produced You know, books? I don't know much about illustrators. I know about illustrators when it comes to the later years with Dennis Lee, for example. Because, again, it's a collecting oh. area that could, could be value. interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and also it enhances the value of the, of the tech. Well, let's do the war. During the war, um, publishing is very limited because yep. of, of constraints. Was there a paper? Paper um, shortage, labor shortage. Paper was being rationed but it was also being used primarily by government publications, so mm. they got first dibs and whatever was left over, okay. which wasn't a lot. The good thing that happened during the war was that the Brits could not export as many books, and so there was an increase in interest in Canadian publications as a result. That continued post-war. So it was a watershed moment because they could not export their books easily, and they actually couldn't produce them very well because they themselves had access Russians. to very little paper. Yeah. This also was a time where Canadians started looking to North America as their point of orientation. So the company was taken over by Robert Huckville as president, but he was just kind of um, an accountant. The publishing side was looked after by a woman named Ellen Elliott, who was absolutely fascinating, and she was Hewer's secretary. She discovered W.O. Mitchell, who has seen the wind. She published the first book by P.K. Page, The Sun and the Moon. Oh, yes, and under Hugh Ayers, Frederick Philip Grove was published, and she continued publishing him. She worked alongside Gladys Neal, who was another very formidable person. She headed up the education department. So the two of them are the key female figures in Macmillan's history. There was a war series during the war. W.O. Mitchells, who was seen the wind, didn't appear until 47. I'm trying to think of, she published Mona Gould, who was a journalist, but she wrote a couple of uh, books of poems. She, again, paid for them herself. And then, after the war, John Gray came back. John Gray was hired under Ayers in 1930, and he worked under Ayers for 10 years, and then he went off to war. He was hired into education, and when he went off to war, Gladys Neal was appointed acting head of education. And if it hadn't been for Gladys Neal's efforts, Macmillan would have folded. She was the main figure in educational publishing for the larger part of the 20th century. When John Gary came back from war, he, first of all, through several maneuvers, ousted Ellen Elliott. She was basically forced to retire. Um, there's a whole side to that story, which is not very attractive. He reluctantly appointed Gladys Neal head of education. He wanted a guy there, but the guy he hired didn't want to be in publishing in the end, he wanted to be an academic. So almost by default, he promoted Gladys Neal. Mm -hmm. So with Gladys Neal in charge of educational publishing, from the 1950s onward, things just really built up. And Gray was a very well-loved, absolutely accomplished publisher. Didn't was take the, too many risks, but he knew how to make money? Is that um, no, I think he did take risks. Like but what, what would be some of the things? He published think? George Eliot's The Kissing Man, which is a collection of short stories that is wonderful, uneven, but wonderful. Mm. He published poets. Sort of unknown poets. Uh, yeah, yes, not a lot, but mm. some. But he also increasingly had a very strong stable of writers. So McLennan, Mitchell, Creighton, Careless, 
Davies came to, I mean, the, the, the list of writers under Gray is the list of who's who in Canadian literature. There were five presidencies of Macmillan. First, as I mentioned, was Wise, then Ayers, Huckville, slash Elliot from uh, 40 to 46, and then Gray comes in as 46 as general manager, and he's made president in the 50s, and he basically retires in 69, but he brings Hugh Kane in from M&S over because he can't really find a successor. So Hugh Kane is there until I think 74, 69 to 74, and during that time Macmillan is sold. But the imprint is still important. Under Kane, the big, big books were Diefenbaker's memoirs, Dennis Lee's poetry. In 1967, under Gray, they published this grand, extravagant book called The Canadians that was a centennial project. It was over 800 uh, pages, and it had black and white and color images, and it was a very grand, elaborate production. What a series. Were there some interesting series that may have been produced? Well, there's the Laurentian Library series, which was the trade series. That came in late. These are paperbacks? Yeah. So the equivalent of the, of new, the new Canadian, Canadian Library. Library. And in okay. fact, what happened was is that uh, Malcolm Ross went to John Gray first to say, this is a series I'd like to do, would you be interested? And Gray was really apprehensive. He was overly cautious um, when it came to that. And then Ross went to M&S and Jack McClellan said yes. So the Laurentian Library was set up, I think 67 or something, somewhere about that, that the first uh, title emerged. And it was very late. It's an important series, but it never has the success or the reach that uh, the NCL does. One of the things that Gray did was he was very interested in history and biography and also um, um, he was interested in juvenile series, so he did The Great Stories of Canada, which was an interesting series. That didn't, was didn't he write one? He wrote a um, um, uh, biography of Lord Selkirk that was award-winning. It won the UBC medal. No, he was a skilled mm -hmm. writer. His historical series uh, were targeting a juvenile readership. And that was quite strategic and unusual for the day. There are wonderful advertisements. There's an ad that I have a picture of a boy in a suit posed in front of the great stories of Canada. All the, uh, all the titles, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can pose it this way. If you were a book collector, right. I had an interest in acquiring books, not just for the content, but for you know, all sorts of different other reasons. What would you collect within... Within uh, Macmillan? Yeah. I, I would collect their literary titles. Number one, their fiction. Number two, their poetry. Anything more precise than okay, that? Okay, so De La Roche, Grey Owl, E.J. Pratt, Hugh McClennan, Creighton, Davies. I mean, all the big-name authors, Wiseman, Wolf, John Gray published Ethel Wilson. Who else? P.K. Page's Sun and the Moon. I mean, from my point of view, that's that's a, a really important work. Mm -hmm. Livesey's Early Poetry. All the major names of Canadian writers, many, many of them had their origins with Macmillan. Mm -hmm. So I would collect them. And I think their series are important as well. If you're interested in nation-building, series serve a really important function in terms of cultural nation-building. Mm. They come out regularly, they build ideologically one on the other. And they're also, depending on how long they go for, pretty all-encompassing. Exactly. You know, the fact that Gray set up these juvenile series with a historical focus was an effort to really validate Canadian history as being interesting and interesting to young readers. That's important. Did um, he uh, hire renowned yeah, authors? Yeah, he had Pierre Burton write something, Marjorie Wilkins Campbell. A lot of those 
books won Governor General's awards in that series. Tons of Macmillan titles won GovGen. Yes. I mean, one of the ways to do it would be to collect all of the GovGen winners. That's I what mean, I'm doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's fun, fun. Yeah. And, and, and when you look at all the, the spines, yeah, yeah, you'll I know. see how I know. Uh, Macmillan and, and M&S, M&S I know. They really dominate. dominate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there weren't a lot of other players in the mid-20th century. More came out later. Really, they were producing magnificent books in terms of their content and in terms of their their look. They were, um, well, M&S was more groundbreaking than, than Macmillan was, but the Macmillan books were very precise and elegant. Well made. Very yeah. well made. Yeah. And, and the other important thing to know is that Hugh Kane hired Doug Gibson. Doug Gibson came in 1974 from Doubleday, and he stayed for 12 years, and it was under Doug Gibson that Macmillan got Alice Munro and Mavis Gallant and Guy Vanderhaeg and like so all these writers that really some of whom are, are publishing now. Also Robert Croach was published under John Gray. Well Morley Callahan was published under oh I forgot him under uh, Hugh, under Hugh Ayers. Very yeah, early yeah on very that. early. He was published always by Ayers. There is a bibliography of Macmillan imprints published by Bruce Whiteman and others. When did that come out? In the 80s. And then there's an addendum to that that Carl Spadoni published in the papers of the Bibliographical Society of Canada. It doesn't go to 86. I think it goes to 1980. That's uh, really where the collector should start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To go beyond that, you need to go with uh, up to 86 with Gibson because under Gibson, he brought incredible authors. Also, Trudeau was published under John Gray and then Diefenbaker was published, and so was Joey Smallwood. They were both published under uh, Hugh Kane. So there was an interest in publishing memoirs by politicians. So what happens with Macmillan is, in the early days, the educational texts are really important. They, they basically funded they the do. experiment they in literature. And in the early <laughs> days. And then they become less significant only because educational publishing changes by the 60s quite a lot. How, how does it change? Well, rules were made more lax so that publishers could not rely on regular contract. Teachers had much more flexibility in terms of choice. And that's part of the reason why all these publishers went bust is because they were relying on educational contracts to fund all their trade publishing. And that wasn't in place any longer. But gradually, the trade started taking precedent in terms of public profiles. Macmillan was always known as a premier educational publisher, but then it became equally, if not more, well-known as a cultural institution for having put Canadian writers in touch with Canadian readers and for these books that they produced with great elegance. And then what happened is Gibson left Macmillan in 86. There were a bunch of circumstances. Many of his authors decamped with him to M&S. So for a number of years, M&S had the best of both Macmillan's lists and M&S's lists. The legacy of Macmillan is there in Gibson's list, really. He's writing his memoirs right Yeah, now. he is. Yeah. When he leaves in 86, that's when Macmillan's trade imprint basically disappears. Just winding down, do you have some favorite Macmillan titles? Yes, I do. I've done a lot of work on Maison de la Roche and Adele Wiseman. Mm. My very favorite, The Sacrifice was published by Macmillan only because I know it so well and I love it so dearly. Mm. The story behind the publishing of that book is a very moving one. So I love that book from Gray's Reign. I also adore Swamp Angel, which was published under Gray, a novel by Ethel Wilson. Why? 
it's a beautiful novel. It's about a woman who basically forges out on her own, leaves an unsatisfactory marriage in a very unusual, interesting way, and it's beautifully written in the most lyrical way, fair but lyrical. It's evocative, and it's atmosphere. It takes place out west. Oh, Wilson was fabulous. And I also love Under Grey, um, The Watch That Ends the Night by... Tom? Yeah. Another governor general yeah. winner. And, you know, for example, I think Gray did take a risk by publishing Ethel Wilson, who came to writing quite late, and, and The Sacrifice, too. I mean, these were all first-time writers. Under Ayers, I like the Dillarush books for, for their series. They look good on the all. shelf. They look wonderful. Yeah. You know, they're so yeah. stately. They're a grand achievement, to my mind. A dozen or 15 or more? Oh, God, I, I don't know. She went okay. from 1927 to 1960. How many mm -hmm. books were in there? I forget. Uh, <laughs> as long as we've identified them, that's yeah, fine. Yeah, no, yeah, they're terrific. I, I know the backstory, right? So I, that's yes. what I like about them. Yeah. The yeah. story about how she got her way with her publishers, and she was quite the dynamo. So I like that. I like Gray's gentleness with with Delaroche and with uh, Wilson. And under Gibson, uh, Monroe is, and Gallant are just superb. So it's a story of great, great books and great figures who shepherd them into life. I hope I'm telling the tale evocatively enough. To um, do it justice. Yeah, yeah, it's a scholarly book, but I've tried to build narrative into it and to make it compelling. When does it come out and what's it called? Well, uh, well, I have a tentative title, Adventurous Spirits, the Men and Women of the Macmillan Company of Canada. Adventurous? No, Venturous. Venturous. Yes. Okay. I think that's what I'm going to call it. Mm -hmm. I think. It's, it's tentative. And I have a contract with the University of Toronto Press. Which owns... Clellan and Stewart. Yes, that's right. It's going to go to them by the end of the summer because I'm now working on the notes. So Great. it'll get to them. And uh, and we'll anxiously await its <laughs> appearance on the shelves of bookstores oh, near you. I hope so. I well, hope thanks so, so much. Oh, for, my uh, pleasure. My pleasure. Sharing I'm your happy insights. happy to talk about Macmillan anytime. I've been speaking with Ruth Panofsky, who is a professor of English literature at Ryerson University in Toronto and an expert on Macmillan. Macmillan of Canada? Macmillan Company of Canada. Yeah. Thanks again. Great, thanks so much.